LPD 1041. Signal 10 assistance. Inside the Squad, presented by the Lafayette Police Department. To serve and protect is not just a motto, it's our mission. Sending another unit. Step it up. All right, welcome back. Inside the Squad, special edition here. Uh, this was one we kind of put together uh, coming up Valentine's Day. Uh, viewers spoke about what they wanted to hear, and we're listening, so... Uh, spinning off into more of a, a true crime podcast today, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about an incident uh, from 2005, uh, a murder we had here in, in Lafayette that uh, expanded to multiple jurisdictions. Uh, we'll get to all that in a minute. I want to introduce our guests. We have Captain Joe Clyde, who's in charge of our investigations division. He was actually an officer at the time of this event, and Lieutenant Tim Payne, who was a detective at the time that was heavily involved in the case. So. Uh, I, I will warn the viewers that uh, this is a uh, basically a synopsis of a murder that happened. It's rather gruesome. There are some details. So uh, if you don't like that kind of stuff, uh, please, please uh, don't listen to this one. If you're into it, absolutely listen. So um, I'm going to turn it over to these guys to kind of give us a little bit of a background about what we knew. Uh, the male uh, from China, Leahy, and female... Uh, Dan Lei Chin were the two involved in this. So I know LPD had some contacts with them prior to this murder actually taking place. So uh, if one of you guys want to uh, give us some background information on it. Uh, so in, I believe it was 2004, and I believe it was Christmas Day. Um, Lei He and Dan Lei Chin, they were married. They came over from uh, China to attend Purdue University. Uh, it's my understanding that... Um, Leahy was a prominent student in China and came to Purdue to study and then was a grad um, assistant with a professor over there and working on some pretty important things at, with Purdue University. Uh, the two were married and there was an incident where the husband decided that he didn't want to be with his wife anymore. They were talking about divorce and uh, she actually stabbed him in the chest, uh, I believe it was Christmas morning, um, which caused her to get arrested for attempted murder. He lived through that incident and later bonded her out. And uh, there was a couple more incidents over on Purdue campus where there was a restraining order in place and that restraining order was violated by Dan Lei Chin and Purdue, uh, I believe at least arrested her once or twice for restraining order violation, which caused them to we think move over to Lafayette because Lafayette uh, police was not as familiar with either person as the Purdue police were. Were they living on campus back then or off campus? They were on campus is my understanding um, in the, uh, what is it? Resident. It was the married Hall. student housing. Married, yeah, married student housing. Okay. 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 So they, so they move over uh, to Lafayette and then we get a call on August 25th of 2005 at 6.15 in the morning. Captain Clyde, you and um, former Captain Phillips, shout out to Captain Phillips. Whoop, whoop. Miss you. Hope you're doing well. Um, you guys get a call to to respond uh, for a check well-being. I'll let you dive into that. Yeah, so I have it at uh, August 26, 2005. 
like 5.46 in the morning. So it's early morning. It's the end of our shift. We work nights. Um, so we get a call for a check well-being. Uh, we were asked to go to the lobby, speak with two guys in there who wanted, it was worried, they were worried about their friend. Um, so we go to the lobby, the Lafayette Police Department. I meet with them and the two, the two roommates, and they're both Purdue students, is Jin Chi Wong and Pelu Ding. I speak with Jin Chi and Pelu, and uh, they have a buddy. They're from China. They have a buddy from China. They didn't know each other in China, but they met kind of over here. And they're, they're students together. Um, they're always in contact with each other just because they're, you know, they're from China. They're over here in America. They meet up, and it makes a lot of sense why they probably hang out together, can speak Chinese to each other, and, you know, they, they hang out. They go to eat, you know, whatever friends do. And uh, they haven't seen their friend in, like, three or four days. Um, not only have they not seen him, he's always online. He was always on, I think he said, MS Messenger, which is a little... Uh, it's it's kind of like text messaging now, I guess, but that he's always online or he's either always in contact with them all the time. They know, they know uh, a lot about him. They've met his wife. Um, but anyway, they haven't seen him. And so that was concerning to them, but they become a lot more concerned when his parents contacted them asking if they had seen him. And they said, no, we're concerned about him. We haven't seen him for a couple of days. Why are you calling us and asking us? And his parents are in China. And this is Leahy's parents. They've called the roommates from China, and they say, you know, but, well, they ask, have you seen our son? No, we haven't. Why do you ask? Well, his wife was stopped by the Chinese government coming into China from the United States. And they had... His wife had their son's passport, which is her husband, doesn't have her own passport. This sends off some red flags to the, I don't know what they have in China, but it's like the TSA or the mm-hmm. entry, the, you know, the officials that handle entry into the country. This is confusing to them. They contact Leahy's parents and ask what's going on, and they have no explanation, prompting the call to the roommates here in, I, they lived in West Lafayette. Uh, hey, have you seen our son? And they don't know. So now we have the parents over in China worried about him. We have the roommates here worried about him. And then they uh, lay on me that, oh, by the way, she's been arrested for attempted murder. I was like, that's, you know, that's interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah, she stabbed him several months ago, almost a year ago now. So that all starts to become a little bit concerning. Um they had tried to go to Leahy's residence, and they were unable to locate him. There was no answer at the door, and they know he had a red Buick, and the Buick was gone. Mm. And that was, I don't know when they first went to his house to try to locate him, but uh, they, they had gone there. And this is the residence in the 700 block of North 5th, Yes. Correct? Okay, yep. So okay. To, to put some perspective on this, they live in Lafayette, like we talked about. They had lived on uh, Purdue. They had moved over to Lafayette. At least Leahy had. The roommates were a little suspicious that he had gotten back with his wife. Um, they didn't like her, probably because she tried to stab him and kill him. Um, 
But anyway, they thought that was probably the case. Um, but they still lived over in either West Lafayette or Purdue campus, which is, you know, and, and just the other thing for some context, Lafayette's a big city and the Wabash River runs through it. Across the river is West Lafayette and we refer to it as our sister city and then Purdue University sets in the middle of West Lafayette. So we're all very connected and close nearby to each other. But they take it another step further. They contact um, – he had an academic advisor. He was getting his Ph.D. in mechanical engineering. They contact the academic advisor and ask, have, have you seen your the, this student, Leahy, that does research for you? And he was had been also weirded out because he hadn't seen him since he thought – uh, Monday. So this is Friday early morning. Nobody's seen him except, well, maybe Monday. So we have four or five days that this guy's been missing. So once again, this prompts them to come do a check well being, get with our department. They originally, I think they knew their buddy, Leahy, had planned to move back to Purdue University. And they had originally, the roommates, gone to Purdue University and, and asked where their buddy was moving because they thought maybe he just moved back to Purdue. Purdue University police go to this apartment where he's supposed to move into, and it's vacant. He hasn't made the move yet. Purdue University says, well, if he's missing, then maybe you should go to Lafayette PD and get with them because he's, they knew he lived in Lafayette. They knew the history. They even provided the case number to us when we were doing this check well-being that, yeah, in fact, they did have charges against Dan Lee for attempted murder. So anyway, they, they directed the two roommates over to our lobby to make this check well-being report. So all this together, uh, that's when I call at the time Officer Phillips, Officer French, and the three of us. We go up to uh, North 5th Street and this uh, 700 block, and we knock at the apartment. This is an apartment building. Um, we get no answer at the door. Uh, their vehicle's gone. We confirm that. So we're thinking, you know, did they just leave? Uh, what's, you know, what, what is the situation here? Uh, the other thing the roommates tell us about this time is Dan Lee is supposed to be in court this week to stand trial for attempted murder. So the timing of this is pretty strange also. So while we're up there, knowing all this, we walk around the apartment. One of the windows is cracked. This window that's cracked, there's this foul odor coming out of the window. And along with this terrible odor. There's a bunch of flies inside the apartment we can see. So looking at the big picture here, I think the, the three of us, the three officers, uh, we think, you know, we probably should make entry to make sure that he's okay. Maybe he fled. Maybe he's, you know, we don't know what the situation is, but there's at least a chance, you know, is he in there? Is he, has he been tied up? Is he injured? Can he not get to the phone to help himself? I think we have enough to at least go in and check his well-being and make entry. Now, when you make entry without a warrant in the situation that we're 
make an entry. You know, you, you really can't go in there and search for evidence or uh, look in small boxes, pull out drawers. You can go in there to, and check the area where a body might be right. or where a person who needs help might be, uh, where, where a person can be hiding or residing or, or just laying, you know, laying there looking for help. And we, you know, our department does, I mean, hundreds of check well-beings every year. And in some cases we do go into a house where someone's fallen, they can't get up or is worse and they, they need police assistance or medical assistance. So that's, that's, te- that is exactly what we're doing. We're just going to check his well-being. If he's not in there, we're done. So, uh, we, we make entry into the apartment. We announce, you know, the police are here. We get no response. We look through the entire apartment. We look through the bedroom. We look through the, the closets, the kitchen, bathroom, everywhere a person could be hiding or injured or laying or, you know, and we find nothing. Um, we do find the source of this terrible foul smell and all the flies in the kitchen. There's two or three bags. Um, they're like kitchen bags, kind of smaller. And uh, that's where the stench is coming from. It is, and I mean, and it's bad. It's really bad. And it's whatever it is. And we later, had I known <laughs> what I know a few days later, sure. looking at it, I'd have had a, maybe a better idea what it was. But, uh, you know, this isn't, you know, like I said, this is not the smell of a dead body. Yeah, and, and and just to 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 hit on that point for a minute, you know, police officers they they know that's a very distinguished smell. Once once you've been around a, a dead body, um, you you just know it, and and you kind of look at each other and give each other that look. So that's what you're referring to is officers genuinely know generally know that if if you're smelling this, it's usually related to a dead body, and you guys didn't have that smell, right? Um, was it more of like a trashy old food type of smell? We thought it was some type of rotted food. Mm. Um, that it was just it was just terrible smell. But like you just said, it's not that you know. Once you smell a dead body, talk to any cop, fireman, mm-hmm. medic, yep. coroner, they have a very distinctive smell, and it wasn't that smell. You know, there's a, and there's a reason it wasn't that smell. Maybe we'll get into that. But uh, anyway, lots of flies around from this, whatever was rotten in these bags. And, uh, you know, like I said, if I knew then what I knew a few days later, I think we'd have maybe looked around a little more for some specific things we found out about. But at the time, there was nothing obvious what had happened in the apartment. Yep. You know, so at that time, we documented all the information we had. We documented what we did, the fact we went in the apartment, what we saw, and we, uh, you know, I pushed this information out to our department that this guy, this uh, Leahy, is he's missing, um, and there's some really strange circumstances surrounding this event. Um, but right then, we're we're kind of done. Yeah, yeah. So so um, we've got a, an initial call from friends that are concerned family that's concerned we know she's detained in china on a on trying to use his passport we know there's criminal history involved between the two of them as far as her stabbing him and that she's set to be at a trial so there's a lot of things a lot of red flags here but 
on our end, we've done everything we can, and, and we're kind of at a wait-and-see scenario. You know, what, what pans out? Does he turn up? Do we get more information to investigate? Well, fast forward um, to August 30th, 2005, when we receive a phone call from Rosemont, Illinois Police Department, who tell us they found a car in their jurisdiction registered um, to, I believe, Leahy, uh, actually both of them, and they're telling us it's parked close to O'Hare Airport, and there's a very foul smell coming from it, uh, and they feared there could be a body inside. So I know, uh, Lieutenant Payne, that's kind of where things ramp up a little bit, and I know your involvement really comes into play there. Take us, take us to August 30th and, and kind of what transpires from there. So retired um, lieutenant at the time, uh, John Withers, was the lieutenant of detectives, and so he called me. And asked me to uh, go with him down to uh, the prosecutor's office to meet with one of the deputy prosecutors, uh, Tim Kern, to kind of brief him on the case and what we had, which at the time was we knew that Dan Lay was uh, stopped over in China uh, with Leher's, uh, or Leahy's um, passport. And we knew that Rosemont had a vehicle that was registered to them and it had a foul odor. And like we talked about earlier with... Uh, a dead body smell. That's the kind of smell that was being described to us. Um, the time frame of this was, you know, in August, so it was fairly hot. And so that obviously added to uh, what they were smelling. They had um, insects around the hood and that kind of thing too. So they were getting a search warrant to open the trunk of the car to see what they had inside. And during that time, uh, I was getting up to speed on what had happened. I found uh, Captain Clyde's report, read through it. Um, we had made contact with um, China to find out exactly what was going on with her over there. And later in the day, uh, Rosemont Police Department called us back and said, uh, we've got the um, search warrant. We're going to be opening up the car, see what's going on. And we had an officer up at the 700 block of North 5th to kind of secure that area so that no one could come in and out of the apartment that we suspected uh, could possibly be involved. So Rosemont ended up opening up the trunk of the car and there were bags, duffel bags, large duffel bags in there. And they opened up one of the bags and saw what they believed to be a human arm. And they stopped right then. They knew that they had a body. They knew that something had happened to this body because it was in pieces. And so they took it to a um, more secure scene because they're in the middle of a parking garage uh, when they're doing this initial search. So once they told us that there was a body inside of the car, um, we got a search warrant for the residence up at 700 block North 5th and uh, got our CSIs and um, our crime scene investigators. And also Rosemont sent some of their crime scene guys down mm -hmm. because we weren't sure where he was murdered if it was, in fact, uh, Leahy. So we were going to do this kind of in tandem, uh, depending on what jurisdiction this happened. So that's what happened is we had a briefing with them, and then we ended up going up and serve the search warrant. So uh, I, I think an interesting part of this case, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, um, so they found the body or they found pieces of the body in the trunk. We're starting to, to kind of figure out what's happened. Correct me if I'm wrong, 
before all of this came to fruition, there was an instance where another jurisdiction had actually stopped uh, Danley before she got to the airport. Is that correct? That is correct. I don't remember the time frame of when we found out that information, but it was learned that another department did make a traffic stop on that vehicle that was located up in Rosemont. So I contacted that officer, uh, had a conversation with him, and he typed a report about what he had. But basically, he was off duty and headed home. Um, He noticed a vehicle in front of him crossing over the center line, crossing over the white fog line on the right had major concern that it was a drunk driver possibly he ends up making a traffic stop on the vehicle he walks up to the driver and uh, ended up being dan lay uh, chin and she described to him that she was lost and was trying to get um, basically back to campus now where this traffic stop took place was near the granville bridge out uh, uh, soldiers home road uh, to the south of town there Um, And at the time, we didn't know exactly what all that meant. Um, But when the body was found up in the trunk of the car in Rosemont, when they were able to get it to a better location to search through it, there were uh, weights, like 5-pound, 10-pound weights, that were tied to limbs of the body. So in theory, we were thinking that she was driving the body out to the Granville Bridge where she could dump the bags into the river and hopefully never be discovered. Wow. So we we think when that other jurisdiction made that traffic stop, the body was in the trunk at that time. But there was just no reason to think that at the time, right? I mean, there was right. no, no indicators of any sort. He he pulled her over because he thought she was drunk. She clearly was not drunk and said that she was lost. And so he gave her directions back to town. There, he even indicated that he looked through the car, didn't see anything. It was very clean, didn't have any reason to suspect anything else. And so he let her go from the traffic stop. Was this the same day as she was headed to the airport? Yeah, so we find out later that um, she ended up basically driving from that traffic stop up to the airport in Rosemont. Uh, and then again later, we were able to, to find a Google search of the Granville Bridge on her computer. So it kind of helped us piece things together mm-hmm. that she was most likely driving out to the Granville Bridge to dump the body into the river and then go catch a plane up in Chicago. Yeah, one, one of the odd things that we saw in the apartment when we did the check while being that at the time made no sense. There was a lot of weights laying around Mm. and they weren't like you were going to lift them or, you know, curl a hand weight or something. They had been taken apart. It was just the plates, right? Yeah. Some of the plates and there was a lot of different weights just laying around in odd spaces you wouldn't suspect. But at the time, you know, that means nothing later on. Well, yeah, it's it makes a lot of sense why there's weights laying around the apartment all over the place. Wow. Mm. And so when we talk about, do you know how many bags were in the trunk? I want to say four. And and can you describe what were in the bags as far as, I mean, the, the cut off all the limbs? I mean, what was the... Yeah, so each limb was um, removed from the body. So there was, you know, one leg was intact uh, together. The other leg was intact in both arms as well. And I, I remember um, looking at the socket where the, the arm is put together that socket was bare like you could see it the bone um i remember noting that there was no nicks to the bone it seemed to be very clean like it just popped out a socket um after talking to a doctor i found out that that's actually pretty difficult to do is to pop that out of socket um but because the flesh was cut it was able to obviously be easier just to be able to get that 
ball out of the socket of the shoulder. Um, the other part was the head, and uh, it was still attached to most of the torso, uh, but there were pieces of skin actually missing, a large piece of skin missing from his torso. So from the chest down to the stomach um, was missing, and that piece of skin was actually tied to a weight itself as a separate piece to, to be disposed of. And so we, we think she dismembered him on her own. We do. And so, Captain, talk for a second. I mean, that that had to be a, at one time before we got there, had to have been a messy crime scene. I mean, they she would have had to have spent a significant amount of time cleaning that crime scene up. Yes. So where were we standing when we did the check well-being? At one point, a place was probably covered in blood. In fact, we know it was. Um but she had cleaned up. Um, so she had dismembered the body, put it in some uh, duffel bags, and then afterwards she went around with a lot of cleaning supplies, some cleaning gloves, some cleaning chemicals, uh, cleaned the place up fairly well, um, and she put all these cleaning supplies that probably did have some blood and some tissue in the bags, bagged it up for whatever reason, never removed them from her house, maybe because she realized if you look through them, you might get suspicious of what happened. But that's what rotted in the apartment. That's what caused all the flies to show up, what caused mm -hmm. the smell, because they were never removed from the apartment. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think she did a perfect job of cleaning up, but she did a good enough job that, like I said, when we were in there, there was nothing yeah. obvious that it had taken yeah. place. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about, I'm sure, the... The CSI's yeah, trip that, in there, but yeah, sure. we later found out that yeah, she had she had dismembered the body inside that apartment. And so that's what I was going to talk about next is, is kind of the warrant service process. So as you mentioned on the initial, we didn't we didn't have a warrant. It was exigency just to check a well being. So we didn't have uh, the ability to really be in depth in a search or or whatnot. But then we get the warrant. Uh, we get the warrant for that residence on on that same night, August thirtieth at nine p.m. Uh, which is when we go inside and we start to kind of maybe piece together a crime scene. So I don't know which one of you want to kind of speak to what, what we found with the warrant or what, what we started to piece together there. Um, so once we got the warrant, went down and served it at the apartment, which just basically means reading the warrant out loud, um, we, we cleared it. So meaning that we went, officers went in, looked around for a person to make sure that it was safe for us to be in there. Uh, there were no people inside so we were able to go in and uh, do our thing so the the crime scene guys they wear protective material uh, clothing uh, booties around their shoes gloves that kind of thing they go in uh, the first thing they do is take a video of the entire apartment so that nothing's been disturbed they take an entire video then they actually took 35 millimeter pictures uh, we we're still using that back in 2005 and then they also took some digital photographs as well let me stop you real quick before you get much further just for viewers listening there was a obviously a, a delay in getting a search warrant but when we received the information about the vehicle we we posted somebody at the house at that time right just right. to make sure nobody was going in and out correct so we had somebody there making sure our crime scene the potential crime scene at that time wasn't disturbed um so 24 7 uh, someone was there well, yeah, it ended up being just that day. Uh, so we were notified on August 30th of what Rosemont found. We posted an officer there, and then we got the search warrant later that night. So okay. they were there for several hours. And in the meantime, we were talking to all the neighbors and interviewing yeah. them to try and find out 
the timeline of what the couple had been doing the last few days. Okay. Yep. All right, go on. And, and I just noticed that the traffic stop on that vehicle was August 22nd, uh, around 11 p.m. So it was a, you know, kind of give you a timeline of August 22nd being the day that she was stopped going out to the Granville Bridge and most likely went to uh, the airport up in, in uh, Chicago. Yeah, the, the 22nd would have been a Monday, I believe. And that's the day the academic advisor of Leahy, that's, so that's the last time I saw him. I think I saw him Monday. I haven't seen him since. So that, that kind of fits the timeline. So this was same day. Yeah. This, uh, I think the traffic stop was later in the day. 11 p.m. Yeah, 11 p.m. He had seen his student in his lab um, earlier in the day, like business hours times. So, so we think it probably the, the murder itself probably happened on that day, the 22nd. Right. Wow. All right. Uh, what else? What else did we find inside that was? Uh, so once the CSIs went in and started, you know, now they're doing a, a real search of every single room, every single um, hiding spot, anything that you can think of, um, based off our search warrant, which is completely different than what the officers did, Captain Clyde and the other officers when they went in, just looking for a person in need of of help. Um, but some of the items that they noted to me were uh, there's a pieces of hair and it wasn't like clumps of hair it was strands of hair and there's quite a bit of it throughout the apartment not like again not like a clump of it just like hair everywhere um similar to like being at a barber shop where your hair was cut and there's just hair laying on the floor on the counter and that kind of thing so they found that they ended up finding some reddish brown stains on the bathtub um packaging tape there was rope um a utility knife, a large butcher knife in the sink, um, some more red stains, three boxes of baking soda. Uh, the smoke detector was actually covered with a bag of some sort, most likely to eliminate if there was any kind of smoke or anything from whatever sh they were going to do in that apartment wouldn't alert the uh, the smoke alarm, make it go off so that the fire or police would show up. Mm. Uh, we did find like Glade air fresheners, um, weights that Captain talked about, spray bottles, yellow kitchen gloves, and just more stains. But uh, again, when you're looking through that, knowing that there's a crime that has occurred, things make more sense to you than when you're just going in checking for to make sure yeah. somebody doesn't need help. Absolutely. So with all of that equipment and stuff in general, do you think she would have had to have this planned like days in advance? Well, I, I definitely think that she uh, had been thinking about it for a while. And when we were able to talk with uh, the officials over in China, um, they ended up talking to her. and We got a transcript of that. And she mentioned that her husband had mentioned about um, getting a divorce again. And that's what caused the first incident over at Purdue. Mm -hmm. And now he's been talking about getting a divorce again and leaving her. And so I think she decided, you know, I'm going to have to to kill him this time, and I don't want to get caught. So she caught she ended up purchasing some things to help clean that up. I think one of the questions a lot of people are going to have is, uh, how was she able to? Do we know how she was able to cut up this body on her own? Well, that was a big topic of discussion for us as well because she's a fairly small uh, female and. Uh, he's a pretty big guy. I think he's around 6'2", maybe 240. 
Um, she was probably around 100, 100 pounds. So talking to the medical doctors and things like that that looked at the bones, it would have to have been an extremely sharp knife um, to make the cuts. And she did it in the, in the joint area so that she had some idea of how the body worked so that she cut into the shoulder and was able to get that socket out of or the ball out of the socket and, and be able to take those uh, parts apart. Um, there was a chainsaw that was purchased by her a few days later or a few days earlier, and we ended up taking that chainsaw and sending it to the lab, and I don't think we were able to find anything on it, um, but it is possible that that was used and just you know thoroughly cleaned and that kind of thing. But most likely when it came down close to the bone, she used a very sharp knife because there was no indication on the bones that there was any nicks or chips or anything out of the bone. Did you ever find that knife? There was a butcher knife. We can't say for sure that's the knife that was used because it was cleaned up. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was it was a large butcher knife that you'd have, you know, in your kitchen. So it just depends on how sharp it was and that kind of thing. There was a claim. She actually made a claim that a second person helped her, and she left the apartment, and that second person uh, dismembered the body, put it into bags, and then when she came back home, all she saw was bags in the apartment, and she loaded them into the trunk. Um, through the investigation and through her computer and, that, and the name that she provided and things like that, we don't believe that to be true. We believe that she was the only person involved in this and somehow was able to dismember the body and, and get it into the bags where she was able to carry him out to her trunk. Wow. And no, we never had any calls from neighbors no. hearing things, seeing things. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, like a chainsaw. Well, How does, so, and I'm thinking about that. this apartment complex. How many apartments are in it? Like, t- talk about where it is in town in relation to other houses and stuff, kind of. Yeah, so so the 700 block of North 5th and Lafayette is, uh, I think there's like, maybe the buildings are connected, so it's not four buildings. It's two large buildings with uh, probably 20 units in each building. It's a, you know, a high density, high density type population. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things we checked the night of the well-being. Has there been any calls? Has there been any other disturbances in the area? Nothing that's really stood out. Um, uh, so I, I think that uh, whatever occurred, we never found anyone that heard anything, mm-hmm. saw that's anything. That's crazy. Was her apartment on the edge? or Their apartment the was on the bottom floor. So as she's moving things out, I'm probably – sure that helped because there's no elevators in these buildings she would have had to carry things downstairs but no that wasn't the case they were they're on the bottom floor um so you know maybe it was a little bit easier for her to carry uh, the bags through her trunk do you know what her background was i mean she seemed to be pretty methodic in everything that she did i mean what do you have any idea what her educational background was or what had she researched all this do we know was there any indication of that um, there was an indication once the computer was examined that she was looking up like decibel levels of trains and uh, what the gunshots were and things like that. But as far as her education level, I know that she was a student at Purdue at one point. I don't recall what she was uh, studying. Um, I believe she was um, kicked out of school after the first incident that happened over at Purdue uh, where she stabbed him in the chest. What about the actual murder? We haven't really gone over that. Yeah, um, the, the cause and mm-hmm. well, yeah. What did we determine? What I mean, what 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 happened? I mean, what? Uh, so what we found out through the autopsy and 
you know, looking at the apartment things is that uh, she shot her husband in the head as he slept uh, in bed. Again, he was quite a bit larger than her. So if there was some sort of struggle, he would have been able to easily overpower her. Um, but we believe that he was laying in bed asleep, uh, or at least had his back to her. Uh, he was shot in the back of the head uh, with a gun. Um, we ended up, Rosemont Police Department ended up recovering that gun inside of the vehicle uh, once a thorough search of that car was done. Um, it was in the passenger compartment area, not in the trunk with the rest of the body, but we were, and we believe that to be the weapon that was used uh, to commit th- this murder. Did that happen at night? I'm not exactly sure when the crime actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume probably it was a night, but I guess if he was seen on that Monday over at Purdue by the professor and then he stopped at 11 p.m. that night, it doesn't seem like that's really long enough. I mean, I've never dismembered a body, but I would assume that that's going to be uh, quite a, a long process and then to clean it up. So I'm not sure exactly when this happened. One thing the professor said is he thought it was sometime around Monday. We know the graduate students work Saturday, Sunday, and, you know, so he's he was never uh, going to give us an exact time. He just thought maybe it was a, on a Monday. So yeah. it's very possible he saw him on a, you know, the, the week before or on the weekend, and it wasn't Monday. So nailing that time down is a little bit difficult. Do you have any information about how she obtained the gun? Yeah, that's what we do. Um, so again, continuing through the investigation, um, at some point there was a map that was located. Uh, I believe it was in the car, and it was a hand-drawn map, and it had a couple phone numbers on it. Um, it, that map was faxed to me and I was able to look at it. Um, it looked like it went through Kokomo over to Greentown. And again, there was the phone numbers on it. So I, I checked those phone numbers. One of them ended up coming back, uh, to Dan Lay Chin, uh, or at least the phone that she was using. And the other one came back to a, an individual over in Greentown. And it actually, from looking at the hand-drawn map and comparing it to like MapQuest, uh, it appeared to be the same same location. So we felt fairly confident that maybe she had driven over there and um, met with someone. So we ended up, myself and another detective, Cecil Johnson, drove over to Greentown, um, knocked on the door, and the map was, I mean, like perfect. I mean, like we took it straight to the door of this house and it was out on county roads. And we knocked on the door, nobody was there. And so we waited over three hours and Finally, someone came home, and I met with them in the uh, – it was a male uh, subject that lived there. And I met with him, and I asked, you know, have you uh, sold a gun recently? And he said, yeah, I, I did. I was advertising on a couple um, internet websites and was contacted, and I met with an Asian female and, and uh, sold her the gun. And so I kind of – we ended up showing him a, a photo array, and he was able to pick out Dan Lei Chin – as the person that he sold the gun to, uh, we discussed the price of it. It was a uh, 357 uh, gun. Um, he even described to us that he took her out back of his house and shot it for her to show her. She didn't know how to shoot a gun or anything, so he took her out back and just showed her that the gun worked and this is how you load it, this is how you shoot it, and then allowed her to shoot it so that she had some idea what she was doing and then actually even gave her a, a box of ammo uh, so that she would have it with her. And interviewing him, he was 
beyond startled, I would say, once he found out what that gun was used for. Um, and he was concerned about himself. Like, would she come back and hurt him now that he uh, spoke with us and things like that? Or um, would he be in trouble of some sort from, from selling a gun that was used in a crime later? And we assured him that that wasn't the case, that we weren't there for any of that. We were just there to try and find out exactly what happened and, and uh, how she obtained the gun. And again, it was just an internet sale and just a random person. He had never met her before. That's crazy. That is. And and I know um, Paul Huff wasn't able to join us today, but we had the opportunity to talk to him kind of about the case because I know he was involved mm-hmm. in it as well. And he had mentioned, and maybe you can speak to this, that, that she had test fired the weapon at the crime scene prior to the murder, we think? That's what we believe, yeah. Um, she actually mentioned that to the police, the authorities over in China, and then they found evidence of that. There was a hole in the bed at the apartment. Um, so, again, about time frame, you know, I don't know if she knew when the neighbors would be home, when they wouldn't. I don't know. I know that when she actually killed him, she spoke of uh, using a pillow uh, to help soften the sound. So she probably shot into the pillow, into the back of him, uh, his head. Um, but a three fifty seven is fairly loud. loud. Uh, so you would think if anybody heard it, they would have called. And we get calls about shots being fired um, before. So, you know, it's it's something that people call the police about. Right. Um, did, uh, I think there was something about a shredded piece of paper we put back together. How did that, how did that come into play? So at the apartment, they did have a, a small shredder that you buy at Walmart or something like that on a trash can, but there were like three trash bags full of shreddings. And we ended up taking those shreddings back to the Lafayette Police Department as part of the search warrant. And um, thankfully, when you put the page through and it shreds it, it leaves everything together. It's just now cut into pieces. But we were able to, you know, even though it was in the bag with other pieces of paper that had been shredded, we were able to find the pieces together. And I remember being down in our, our basement at the old building, and there's like 12 tables, and I had all 12 tables covered with pieces of shreddings that I was putting back together and able to uh, read or see what, what exactly they were. And I don't remember what everything was. Um, I think we found another one of those maps over to Greentown where she purchased the gun. I think we found some map quests uh, to Granville Bridge. We did also uh, see that she was uh, getting directions up to the uh, airport in Chicago. Uh, She was researching hotels uh, that were up in Chicago area, uh, things like that. So we were able to kind of put things back together and get kind of an idea of what she was doing. Um, So... You have all of this evidence against her, but no offender. She's in China. What what are what do you do? So it was a, obviously new to me. I'd never dealt with someone that had fled the country. Um, so I ended up calling over and speaking to. Uh, well, actually, they. So China ended up contacting someone from Chicago as a translator, and they were with uh, the consulate up there. And so, basically, any questions or any discussions that I had, I would call that person, and then they would call over to China and speak with them because obviously there's a language barrier. So that was super nice that we were able to contact somebody that spoke English and spoke uh, Chinese and speak with both sides. So I asked, like, you know, how does this work? Do we need to get, uh, if we develop probable cause for her arrest, do we get a warrant or how does this work? And it was explained to me that because she's uh, killed a Chinese national, she's from China, and uh, she was already back in China, that they were not going to 
be um, releasing her back to the United States in that they would actually do a trial in China based off of our evidence. They would send a team of people over, which they eventually did. Um, they sent a team over. They got all of our reports, all of our evidence, all our pictures and everything. They went back over and ended up having a trial uh, where she was found guilty. Wow. Um, I, you know, such a unique case and um, the amount of multi-jurisdictional between us, Rosemont, uh, Chinese consul. I mean, there was a lot of moving parts in this. Um, and so I, I see here where officially in January 5th of 2007, the Tiffany County Prosecutor's Office declined to file charges. And and that's simply because we we said, yeah, China, you want to handle it? It's We don't really have a say. It's yours. Right. Okay. Um, so it was, what was really interesting is they sent over about 15 to 20 people, and that included um, civilians and police. So their, their, their main detective, um, they had some CSIs, they had prosecutor's office, they had, um, I don't remember what all their titles were. There's about 15 or 20 people that came from China over here, and they met with us, and I provided a, a briefing about everything that we had. Um, all the evidence, and then uh, they spoke with several of the officers that were there uh, throughout the investigation. They went up to Rosemont and met with all of them, got their evidence, got everything, and they went up to the apartment. Uh, so we arranged with management to let them back into the apartment. It would not have been uh, rented back out, so they were able to walk through that and kind of see and get an idea. Uh, once all that was complete, they did go back uh, to China. They had a one-day trial. Uh, she was uh, convicted, and they, they flat out told me, like, this type of crime will be handled very quickly in China. Like, you know, they knew that our process was a lot, it takes a long time to get to trial, and then the trial would normally take uh, multiple days, if, if not weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, you know, a sentencing time frame and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the appeals process. Well, in China, the way it was explained to me is they had the one-day trial, they found her guilty, and immediately sentenced her to death. Um, and they thought that the appeals process and everything would be done within two years. I've learned since then that uh, if she had good behavior for the two years, that it, that death sentence could be changed to life in prison or a certain time frame. Unfortunately, I don't know uh, what happened to her mm. if she was sentenced to death or if she was, or if she was uh, killed or if she was uh, released or if she's still sitting in prison over in China. So I found an article from the Shanghai Daily um, that said Chen has been has not been charged by any U.S. court because China and the U.S. do not have an extradition treaty. Can you go over that a little bit and what that means? Well, there's certain countries, and we've had several cases uh, throughout the years that I'm familiar with where uh, someone has fled our jurisdiction and goes to another country. Typically, the United States has extradition, an extradition treaty with other countries, but there's a few countries out there that we don't. Um, and I don't know what the rules are with China. I just know that they're not going to extradite anyone because we want to. Now, they, I suppose there could be a case where they would be willing to do it, but in this case, uh, that wasn't something they were going to do. I think I'm just interested. I mean, both of you are, are two of our more senior, I guess, officers here now. 
What what did you take from this case, or how did this case kind of shape or impact? You know, it was almost twenty years ago. How, how did it change you guys? Yeah. So looking back on it, I you know wondered what could I have done different, being the first officer responding or one of them on that check while being. And I, I had gone there with uh, Officer Phillips and Officer French. I've worked with them for a long time. They're very good officers. And not only are they really good officers, uh, police officers, they're, they're really smart. They can think outside the box. They knew the situation we had, and we were all looking for something suspicious. And yet we didn't see anything, like I said, that was obvious in there. So, you know, as police officers, we always... Uh, you know, you always hope for the best, but you prepare for the worst. You got to think of the worst case scenarios. And we, we, you know, we didn't catch it at that time. Now, we learned later that, you know, the, the murder had happened days before. And, uh, you know, we're there four, five days after the fact. Um, and thinking about it, you know, she had the mattress on the bed. It had been covered in blood. Um, but she had put a, uh, a, a quill or a, a blanket over top of that. We never saw that. Um, she had cleaned up the kitchen. Um, but there were little pieces or stains throughout the apartment that she probably didn't clean up. And, you know, when you go into a, a smelly, really dirty apartment, it's covered in hair, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's in bad shape. Although she cleaned up, she cleaned up blood. She didn't clean up like the you know the the messy apartment um you know you see a little little brown stain somewhere you don't immediately think well that could be blood now technically we couldn't have tested it at the time stuff like that but and the thing i always learned is always you know always be looking you know maybe we couldn't have found anything but uh you know that's always in the back of my mind the the other odd thing um you can never have too much information i found out after the fact that all those flies that were in the apartment, they weren't your typical house flies. They were bow flies, if I'm saying that right. Um, mm. If I'd have been an entomologist yeah. and grabbed a fly, looked at it closely, I would have probably said, hey, this is, there's something here. So, you know, there, you never can know too much as a police officer. You never can be, you know, there, there's always that weird bit of knowledge that if you have, you could use in this situation. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, for me is always, you know, don't don't think you ever know everything or you, you can you can't miss something. You always can. So it's just uh, uh, reinforced to me as an officer, you know, you, you know, you got to give it 100 100 percent all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, even if you miss something, you know, I, I just still to this day wonder, it, surely there's something in there I could have seen to. You know, it, it turns out it wouldn't affect it anything at all, the outcome. But that, that's that's the thing that – that's the feeling that's always left with me. Sure. it's good stuff. LT? Yeah, just perusing my report here real quick before I answer that question. Uh, we did find a receipt on August 22nd at 5.25 p.m. from uh, Walmart. Um, kind of interesting because items of interest on that receipt were three boxes of baking soda, a sprayer, two air fresheners, OxyD. Mm. Uh, cleaner, river rock, trash bags, dumbbells, and two ant killers, um, spray bottles. So, you know, thinking back through the timeline, we had the traffic stop later that night. 
we had this at 525. I would guess that the she had shot and killed him probably before that and then realized, you know, this is everything I have. I need to go buy this stuff to be able to um, clean up everything that I need to. So I would guess that the murder probably happened during the day, and then she went and bought everything to help clean up and hide uh, what she had done. And maybe that's why, you know, she did it during the day because there were everybody's at work. Um, that's why nobody heard it. But as far as what I've learned, uh, this case was pretty interesting because there's a lot of things that you, we don't typically deal with. Um, so, you know, we go to the house and it's it's a pretty clean house, um, comparatively speaking. And we had to wait till it was dark out. We used what we call an ALS, which is just an alternate light source. And uh, uh, Steve Coney was an expert in blood spatter and using that type of uh, those devices. So he, we had to wait till the sun went down. We went in with that alternate light source and we were able to see everywhere that she cleaned up uh, something. So we would assume it to be blood. And I remember um, the kitchen floor was like a linoleum type floor and there was lots of swirls from, you know, rag or whatever, where she had cleaned up quite a bit all over the kitchen floor. So uh, there was quite a bit in the bathtub. So I would assume that's where most of the dismembering took place. And then, you know, she probably put them in bags, brought them in before she took them outside, left them sitting on the on the kitchen floor, the blood uh, went through that and, you know, caused her to have to clean all that stuff up. So, uh, that was my first time we'd had to use an alternate light source for that. Um, and again, Steve Coney was a blood spatter expert. So he was able to be there with us to kind of explain what it was, what we were seeing. Um, it was also one of the first times that we'd really examined a computer under search warrant and had someone forensically examine it. Um, which resulted in quite a bit of information from us. We found over 1,500 inquiries into guns on the Internet that she had done uh, asking about how many decibels there was when the gun went off and what kind of ammunition it used and uh, if it would leave a big hole or a small hole and, you know, just all kinds of things, which, you know, had we not done a, a forensic look through that computer, we did not know any of that because uh, there weren't any shreddings from that or any paperwork from it. It was all stored on the hard drive and uh, Purdue University was able to help us out with some of their computer people to be able to, to look into that. And then dealing with the other agencies, you know, doing a crime scene with two different agencies there and not stepping on each other's toes, mm -hmm. uh, dealing with uh, a, another country. Um, you know, that doesn't even speak our, our language. So there was a lot of things that I learned through that. And just to be diligent going through, you know, finding those shreddings, taking the time, you know, all of us went through and put them back together and uh, following every possible lead we could, even though, as we talked about, the suspect wasn't here, we were still res felt responsible for giving closure to the family. I actually met with uh, or Leahy's uh, parents uh, and explained as much as I could to them through a translator and, and things like that. So it was it was quite the uh, interesting case for me uh, to start my detective career. I started as a detective in 2001, so I'd been a detective for four years at that time. Wow. Well, we, we thank you guys for coming on and sharing thank you. Uh, such, a, such an interesting case. Uh, I was hired in 06, and for some reason, I, I guess I never knew about this case. So maybe there's others out there that didn't know about it, but um, 
Wow. Wow. What a lot of work and a lot of good work that went into that. So, all right, that's a wrap for this one. We're back inside the squad. Uh, March 4th will be episode number four. So look forward to uh, talking with you again then. Yeah, so tune in. uh, Send your questions and any topics you'd like us to discuss to inside the squad at lafayette.in.gov. For now, inside the squad, 1042.